Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 10. Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. Here in Luke 17, Jesus has uh, three words for uh, his disciples. He's going to speak to us about, about sin, about faith, and about service. Uh, sin and how to deal with it. Faith, how to exercise it. Uh, service, what it really looks like in the Christian life. Uh, before, we, before we read this passage of God's word, let's pray once again, recognizing that we need God's help to understand it. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. So grant us the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we might understand the gospel and more clearly the life that the gospel enables and initiates. Um, Enable each and every one of us here today to trust in Christ and to serve him with joy. We ask it in his name. Amen. Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear God's word. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward... You will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Well, we're we're still in the section of Luke's gospel where Jesus, since Luke chapter 9, is on his way to Jerusalem in order to go to the cross, in order to lay down his life and give himself as a ransom for his people. And along the way, we've seen Jesus get into these different conversations. And I think it's vital for us to recognize the fact that um, when Jesus gets into these conversations, he is speaking to at least three different groups. He, He speaks, first of all, to the crowds who who at this point are are not committed followers of of the Lord Jesus. He speaks to the religious leaders, particularly the the Pharisees and the scribes who have shown themselves to be opposed to the kingdom of God. And then he also speaks to his disciples, 
those who are already uh, experiencing the, the blessings of the kingdom of God as they trust in Christ. Now I say it's really important for us to recognize that because I think we are, we are heading for a spiritual train wreck. We are heading for spiritual disaster. If we think what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he is saying to everyone without, without qualification. And the reason I say that is because if you, if you try to do what Jesus is speaking about here without already being a disciple, trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are heading for disaster. You'll, you'll find out it's actually impossible because you, you lack the, the power and the resources needed in order to live by the teaching of Jesus, and it may actually, in the end, turn you away from the Christian gospel. So it is absolutely crucial that if you are not already a disciple of Jesus, that you understand this, this teaching here is not your first responsibility. Your first responsibility is not to try to strengthen yourself and live by these teachings in order to make yourself a Christian. Your first responsibility is to hear the call of Christ, to come to him in order to become a Christian. And then as one of his disciples begin to understand how the kingdom of God changes and transforms your life. So with that, with that qualification made, Luke makes it clear that Jesus is speaking to his disciples in, in verse 1. He, he said to his disciples. And so Jesus is teaching us, if, if we are his disciples, three lessons for the Christian life. Uh, sin and how to deal with it. Faith and how to exercise it. And Christian service and what it really looks like. And in verses 1 through 4... Jesus speaks about sin and, and how to deal with it. And actually, he, he, he has two things to say here to two different people. Um, he, he, he warns those who, on the one hand, would lead others into sin. And then he speaks to those who have been sinned against. And so, in verses 1 and 2, he warns those who, by their words or actions, tempt others to sin. And if you have an ESV Bible, at least in front of you, I don't know about other translations, you'll notice down in a, in a footnote, it gives you a, a clue about the, the word that Jesus is using. The idea here is of, of a stumbling block, something that, makes you, something that makes you stumble rather than follow Christ, something that trips you up and fall by the wayside. It's, it's one of the many word pictures that the Bible gives to us to describe the multifaceted nature of sin. And here Jesus is warning those who would cause others to stumble instead of coming to him and trusting in him and following after him. And you see how serious this is for Jesus. Look at, look at his warning. If you do this, it would actually be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, whether Jesus is by little ones referring to, you know, young children or whether he's referring to all of us as Christians as little ones isn't the main point. The main point is that Jesus is passionately hostile 
to anyone who would cause others to stumble instead of come to him and trust him and follow him. And friends, there are all kinds of ways that, that we, could, we could do this. Um, some, of you will, some of you will recognize the name Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher. His philosophy might be a stumbling block to some of you, so just set that aside for a moment. Um, at one point, Soren Kierkegaard uh, said, you know, the most dangerous thing for a young child is not to have a father who is a free thinker. He means someone who does not believe in God. Soren says, you know what the most dangerous thing is? The most dangerous thing is for a young child to have a father who goes to church Sunday after Sunday recites the confessions of sin, recites the confessions of faith, sings the hymns, uh, listens to the sermons, and then leaves, and none of it has anything to do with the rest of his life. So when Kierkegaard says that's a stumbling block that parents put before their children when they live that way. You know, we could do it, we could do it in lots of other ways. We can, we can do it with bad attitudes that set a you know, bad spiritual example, we, we, can, we can do it by luring others into a juicy gossip. We can do it by enticing someone into sexual sin. We can do it with a spirit, an infectious spirit of discontent that, that uh, goes out and infects others. These are just a few examples of how we can lay stumbling blocks in front of others, causing them to sin instead of trusting and obeying Jesus. And you see, Jesus says it would actually be better for someone to hang a millstone around my neck and for me to be thrown into the depths of the sea rather than cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's how serious Jesus is about my sin damaging others. But then notice he, he shifts and, and he starts to Say, now how are you dealing with sin yourselves? What do you do when someone sins against you? So let's have a little spiritual test here. Multiple choice. What do you do when someone sins against you? Among the family of God. Among professing Christians. What, what do you do? Do you, do you go to the elders and file a complaint? Wrong answer. Do you give them the cold shoulder and start to avoid them? Wrong answer. Do you go behind their backs and start bad-mouthing them? Wrong answer. So, so what's the right answer? Well, the right answer is, is really difficult because, frankly, we'd find it much easier to, to go to the elders or to avoid that confrontation or to go around destroying that person's reputation. But the right answer is that you actually go to them and rebuke them. Not in a spirit of self-righteousness. Not, not, not with the conviction that you're right entirely and uh, they're completely wrong. Um, not, not with hatred, but in love and in a spirit of humility. You go to them and you rebuke them. I'm not making that up. If, if this is an offense that you, you can't cover over in love, if it's something that's going to hinder your relationship with that brother or sister, then you go to them 
and rebuke them. Just look at what Jesus says in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. You know, I was, I was so offended by, by what they did. But you see, Jesus says, you're, you're really not taking this seriously unless you are prepared to, to go to them and address them and say to them, dear friend, you're not walking in the way. You know, I had a, a professor in seminary. Shouldn't surprise you, seminary is a place where a lot of students sin against one another and sin against their professors. And uh, it's, it's kind of sad, really, to, to, to see uh, how many men preparing for ministry or getting into arguments with one another about finer points and, you know, complaining about certain professors. Well, I had a, I had a professor at, at, um, when I was doing my, my uh, master's work um, and it was his policy, his practice, and he would make this known at the beginning of every class that if, he, if you came to him complaining about another student, complaining about another professor, he would immediately take you, this is a small seminary, he would immediately take you by the arm and go and find that student, go find that professor and say, we have something to talk about. You know, I, I think what that resulted in is not many people going to him to uh, share their concerns. But I've often thought, you know, what, what, if, what if a church actually put that into practice? Uh, I think what he was doing was, was healthy because, you see, discipleship is seriously relational. Maybe you think, but I, I never knew discipleship was that serious. I never intended to get that involved. I mean... I might even have to confess my own sin in the process of doing that. And Jesus is saying to us, discipleship is this serious. Because unless you're willing to do that, then you really don't care about the other person. I mean, I, I, if I'm unwilling to do it, I am saying in my heart, they may as well go to hell with their sins. Just so that I might go on living my life, not worrying about getting involved in such a confrontation. I'd rather avoid that. But you see, Jesus is saying that if you are one of his disciples, then you cannot ignore this. And, and when our hearts are in a proper place, then what you'll find is that when disciples actually live this way, motivated by love, clothed in humility, that peace will reign among the people of God. People confessing their sins to one another, repenting of their sins, reconciling, and instead of visits from the elders and cold shoulders and reputations being destroyed, you win a brother or sister and the gospel of Christ is adorned. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think, perhaps especially in our Presbyterian circles, that we, we fall into the trap of thinking, well, this is the business of the elders. Well, dear friends, it's, it's the business of the whole congregation. Yes, Jesus establishes elders in his church so that when things, when things fall apart, they're there to try to help. But this is the business of Christ's church. So this is serious to Jesus that his disciples learn how to address sin. 
And I think that's for the reason, I think that's the reason why the disciples say what they do then in, in verse 5. Lord, increase our faith. The disciples feel overwhelmed by the sheer challenge of Jesus' teaching. And so the passage shifts from talking about sin to talking about faith. Notice the language that the disciples use. They, they don't say, Lord, give us faith because we lack it. They are conscious that they have faith. They're trusting in Jesus. And so they say, Lord, increase our faith. If I'm, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to obey your teaching, I need more faith than I've got. That's their assumption. And it's in that context that Jesus says, you know, if, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, tiny little faith, you could, you could say to this mulberry bush, be uprooted and plant it in the sea and it would obey you. Now, there's absolutely no evidence in the New Testament that the, uh, the disciples or the apostles, for that matter, went around plucking up mulberry bushes by faith and hurling them into the sea. And there actually would be very little point in them doing that. Be more of a magician's trick than anything. So we need to understand, Jesus is using a figure of speech here. We actually have rabbinical literature where rabbis talk about mulberry bushes having deep roots. that go, you know, They go deep into the ground and their roots last for over 600 years. And so it's a picture, it's a word picture of something firmly rooted in the ground being lifted up cast into the sea. It's a picture of the impossible happening. It would be like Jesus coming to us today and saying, if you had just a little bit of faith in me, you could say to this pig, fly, and it would fly. It would obey you. You know that, you know that statement when pigs fly, it's a figure of speech referring to something that's impossible. That's, what, that's how Jesus is speaking here. He's saying, what, what I'm telling you about dealing with sin, your first reaction is, that is impossible for me to live that way. I need more faith than I've got. And Jesus actually, I think he's gently correcting them. Because their problem and, and our problem is not that we don't have enough faith. The problem is that we've lost sight of the object of our faith that gives faith its power. And so Jesus is, I think, redirecting them here. Just as, some, just as we might, you know, if someone saw you go through a difficult period of life, a trial, and, and, um, and you know, you did so in the strength of the Lord, living by faith, and they might, they might say to you, I wish I had the faith that you have. What do you, what do you need to do there? Well, you need to gently redirect them and say, it's not my faith you need, it's my Savior you need. Because the power of faith resides not in the one who exercises it, but in Jesus, who is faith's object. And so Jesus is saying, if you'll just see that even, even mustard seed-sized faith, you know, proverbi proverbially, um, the, the smallest seed there is, mustard seed-sized faith gets exactly the same Christ in all of his grace and power. Greater faith doesn't get you a greater or bigger Christ than small faith gets you. And so I think that's why Jesus is, is saying this. And what I think he's saying is, if you have a, have a little faith that's directed to him, the one, who, the one who forgives sin, 
not only once a day or seven times a day or 700 times a day, but infinitely more. And as you rest and rejoice in the forgiveness that you find and receive in him through faith. When that reality defines you, then, then of course, when a brother or sister comes to you and says, you know, I've, I've blown it again. I've really, I've really messed up. I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. I repent. Will you please forgive me? And when those are not merely empty words, then the same pardoning grace that has washed over us can overflow from us to them and we are able to say, I forgive you. Because, my friends, you see, faith is not a passive thing. Remember what Martin Luther said about faith? Faith is a busy little thing. Faith that gets hold of Christ. And in Christ we find there are resources for living this way. And we find that we who are forgiven uh, have, have received the grace and the resources necessary in order that we might forgive others who truly repent. And that leads then to verses 7 and 10 through 10 where Jesus starts to talk about service. Now, some, some commentators see these passages as you know, disconnected, unrelated pieces of teaching that Luke just kind of threw together. But I think, there is, I think there's a connection here. There's a, there's a logical flow to the way these things are, are arranged. As he speaks about how we deal with sin and therefore cry out to the Lord for the ability to exercise that kind of faith. And then Jesus teaches us about the character of Christian service with this story that he tells. So you've got, you've got a master and, and his servant And during the day, the servant is out plowing the fields, tending to the sheep. And at the end of the day, he he comes in from the fields. And uh, he's he's no longer shepherd. He's now the chef. And his master doesn't doesn't say to him, oh, look, you've you've had a long day laboring out there in in the sun. Why don't you come, come and have a seat and get your feet up? And, and, and I'll, go get, I'll go get dinner for you. <laughs> That's not what he says. He says, you know, get yourself cleaned up and prepare my meal. And at the end of the day, he doesn't say to him, you know, you've done so much for me and your surface that, uh, you know, I just, I just owe you a great debt. Now, the master understood that the servant was doing nothing more than what the servant was hired to do. The servant was doing nothing more than fulfilling his responsibility. And the servant was conscious of the fact that he was doing nothing more than what was his duty to do. So why does, why does Jesus tell the story then? You know, it's not the whole story when it comes to serving our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think he tells this story because one of the things that may happen in our Christian walks is that by God's grace, as we're trusting in Jesus Christ for enabling strength, we, we may find ourselves you know, following the teaching of Jesus, being, being sinned against and forgiving others. And what's the temptation at that moment? The temptation, I think, would be to pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, look at this, Jesus, I'm really doing you some favors. 
really earning some brownie points with you, Jesus. Jesus, now you, now you owe me. And you see, that's another place where we stumble in our Christian walks because we've lost sight of the fact that it's only because of the Lord Jesus that we're able to live that way. In all that Jesus enables us to do, we never let our eyes rest on our service, lest we come to think our service gives us leverage. You know, we're always saying, Jesus is the only, the only one who has made me his servant. It's only by his grace I'm sustained as his servant. It's only by his grace that I'll be preserved as his servant. I have done nothing more than what is my duty to do as a blood-bought purchase of Jesus Christ. It's one of the ways the New Testament speaks about Christians, that we have, we have been purchased, that we are not our own, but belong to our Savior Jesus Christ, installed, if I can put it that way, into a life of faithful service so so that we we can say to him and to one another at the end of the day we are simply servants doing what our master has told us to do that's one of the ways that we need to think about ourselves as disciples of the lord jesus christ i said a moment ago that's not all there is to say about serving christ and jesus makes it clear that that's not all there is to serving christ in this very gospel he will Remind us that one day his servants will stand before him and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful with a little, you will be given much. So our Lord Jesus, in his grace, will crown the service of his servants with gracious gifts. But you see, we are servants and that needs to be part of our mindset as Christians, in all of our service, in all of our attempts to obey our master, we are only doing what we should have done. You know, what would, let me, let me try to illustrate it this way. What would, what would you think if you came up to me after the service today and, and uh, it's a far chance, but thought, you know, Pastor Jared, great sermon. And I said, you know what? Yes, it was. It was a fantastic sermon. I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to speak to this many people because I really am something. Well, you'd, I think you'd rightly think that's the last time I listened to that chump. Because you instinctively know, as a Christian, that as a pastor, I am doing nothing more than what I should be doing with the strength that the Lord gives me. And that at the end of the day, I am nothing more than a servant of Christ. And that applies to you as well, dear friend. All we do in the name of Christ, in service and obedience to him, is nothing more than what we ought to do. You see, it's, it's when we realize the grace that we receive in Christ and the privilege of being caught up in something bigger than ourselves, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God. We're actually enabled to serve one another without puffing ourselves up and instead put all of the attention and all of the focus on Christ, who is the giver of the gifts. So at the end of the day, you and I can say to each other, all that I've done 
in the name of my Savior has been for God's glory and for your good. And, but that, what we need to understand is that's only possible when we have given ourselves unreservedly over to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we have died to our own claims of self-importance and our own giftedness, when we die to ourselves, it's then that we can enjoy the privilege of service in Christ's kingdom. I think there's a great story that illustrates this with uh, Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you will know that name, the widow of Jim Elliot, who was martyred by the Alka Indians well over 50 years ago now. And she became fairly popular in the Christian community and went around speaking at conferences. So she would have a lot of conversations with young ladies who would come to her and say to the effect, you know, if, I think if the Lord called me to give up everything and to go onto the mission field, that I would die. And Mrs. Elliot says that she always responded to such statements with a single word. Her single word was wonderful. Wonderful. She gets it. She gets it. That when we, when we die to self, on the other side of dying to self, serving Christ, that, that this kind of Christian life becomes gloriously satisfying. And so three lessons for disciples, dealing with sin, exercising faith, and serving the master. Are you, are you one of these disciples? Maybe as you've listened to these things and you've honestly reflected upon your own life and heart, you've, you've realized, I, I'm, I, hey, I'm not a part of this. This has nothing to do with, with my daily life. Then once again, dear friends, your, your first concern is not to try to grit your teeth and try to do these things to make yourself a Christian. Your first concern is to hear the earnest invitation of Christ himself to come to him and find rest and the resources necessary for living this kind of life. Brothers and sisters, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, my call to you today is very simple. Let's do this. Let's do this. You know, we've come to see who Jesus is and what he teaches us to do. While we are often conflicted, I know, because of remaining sin in our lives, I know that in your heart of hearts, you want nothing more than to do what Jesus Christ tells you to do. So let's, dear friends, come, come together and trust him and trust that he will equip us with everything we need to obey him and to live this way. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for the word of our Lord Jesus Christ and the way that it surprises us and comforts us and confronts us. Uh, sometimes we come to his word and, and we think, surely I, I missed that out last time I read this passage. And so, Father, we, we thank you for the ministry of your word. And we pray that you would hide this word in our hearts. And that by your Holy Spirit, each one of us would truly trust in Christ and then live this way in the power of your spirit. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.